0: Hey everybody, this is Jeremy. We are doing something a little bit different on the podcast today. I'm going to play a section of a conversation that I had with Jackson Washburn, a young Latter-day Saint apologist. We have had some dialogue here recently where I asked him some questions and he asked me some questions. And we are just going to release each uh, question as its own episode here on the podcast. So that way you can consume it a little bit at a time the first three episodes we release with uh, these conversations will be Jackson asking me three questions and the next three episodes will be me asking him three questions about his beliefs so I hope you enjoy this conversation if you have any questions or comments please be sure to reach out to us if you are a subscriber uh, please make sure that you give us a like on whatever uh, platform you're using to subscribe to us leave a rating Uh, leave a comment, do all that stuff that helps us. Uh, That would be great. We appreciate it very, very much. We hope you have a good and godly day.
1: My kind of overarching question is, uh, what are your thoughts on the documentary hypothesis and the varying theological worldviews that its textual traditions seem to espouse? So beyond just differences in use of the divine name, uh, so, you know, for those who might not be familiar, the documentary hypothesis um, has its origin in kind of a, um, what's referred to as like higher criticism of the Bible, um, a historical development uh, around the, the 19th century. Um, the documentary hypothesis was really um, initially popularized um, uh, by an individual of the last name of Wellhausen forget his last name, was it William what, Velhausen or something? Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, no. first name, not important, but Velhausen, yes. uh, you know, that that's uh, the important name there um, that, you know, breaks essentially the Hebrew Bible into four kind of distinct schools or traditions, um, J, E, P, and D, um, and these letters referred to these schools, the the J being the Yahwist school, uh, the J being, you know, for the German uh, uh, way of, of spelling that, you know, like Jehovah, um, e being Elohist, uh, um, P being priestly, and D, Deuteronomist. And so these four schools um, have historical origins in different parts of ancient Israel. Um, they carry different theological worldviews. Um, and in the text of the Hebrew Bible, um, it's the view of the documentary hypothesis that we can segment the, the Hebrew Bible, the text, um, into uh, these different camps, and that some of these camps uh, redacted earlier texts, um, such as the Deuteronomists, redacted earlier uh, texts coming from these other schools in order to reflect their theology or, or you know, inject their theology into them. Um, so, with these schools, like the Yahweh school, for instance, um, the argument is that uh, there you have. Uh, a view of God that's corporeal and highly anthropomorphic, um, and also favors the, the use of Yahweh as the divine name. Um, there's differences in the other schools as well. Um, but, uh, you know, what do you make of kind of this, this historical phenomenon, this, um, you know, view that is popularized, uh, I'd say, in secular biblical studies? Um, it's held also by, you know, some Jews and some Christians um, and uh, there's various articulations of it. It's, um, it, it's since become less popular. Um, there's not a complete consensus, but at least for many biblical scholars um, who don't have your same theological commitments, um, they would see the Bible as an evolving text, which was later redacted by uh, individuals with different points of views, um, and that uh, there's different uh, historical critical methods that we can use to discern you know what texts come from which schools and what worldviews they might represent um so w- what do you kind of ma- make of the documentary hypothesis and uh how, how do you a- approach it
0: so it's julius bellhausen i just looked yeah up. there we go awesome. <laughs> and, Thank uh, you. yeah bauer and boltman are the other two big names mm-hmm. with, with that but and now uh, you know bart bart airman too would be a big mm-hmm. name a contemporary name. but um i think yeah, so. of course i uh, I reject the JEPD theory quite fully, and I learned it JEDP. You, oh, okay. Learned it PD. I,
1: um, I, I've seen it as PD in some places. I, I, okay. I think there might be some some
0: variability there. Always throws me off because I think most places do PD like you do. I don't yeah. know why I learned it the other way, <laughs> but um, anyway. Uh, so you know, kind of besides the fact that I don't believe there's really been any. Historical documentation that that proves the theory. It's more of a um, kind of a summation of looking back at history and kind of piecing together from a different pre-commitment. Um, you know, I would say, look, the the majority their starting point is a rejection of the possibility of God revealing Himself to man in such a way that we can understand it, um, mm-hmm. and. You know, let alone his preservation of the text. Uh, they mm-hmm. they start from a position that there are no miracles. Many of them do, and so this is just purely a man made book. Um, and but beyond that, and I think more convincingly, as we look at Jesus's view of the Old Testament and the apostles' view of the Old Testament, that doesn't line up with this theory at all. Uh, when Jesus made reference to Moses. He was making reference to the writings of Moses. Uh, That's what he taught is that Moses wrote those things. And, um, you know, that's critical in my view of it. I would also say that the depictions of God are not differing or in opposition, but Mm -hmm. instead are complementary within a Trinitarian worldview. So there are some appearances of God where he is totally formless and that makes sense. Uh, we don't believe that God is a man. We don't believe God has a body, but ontologically he is immaterial. So that mm-hmm. makes sense. And then God, when he appears to reveal himself in human-like form, we see that as a foreshadowing of the incarnation of Christ, the person mm-hmm. of Christ who was to come and take on flesh and walk among us. And we see that as being complementary. Um, it's also important to recognize within the Pentateuch, the historical progression that exists, because, of course, this theory just focuses on, um, or mainly focuses on, I guess, the Pentateuch, the JEPD theory. And in Exodus, you have Moses writing down the events he experienced, and then he goes on to write down what he said to the Israelites. Uh, And then you get to Deuteronomy, and he is giving sermons to those to the children of the Exodus Israelites, so there's a a large historical progression going on of decades, and Mo, mm-hmm. you have Moses experiencing things, and we read it as a narr- narrative. Then you have Moses proclaiming things, some of which he experienced, but he didn't proclaim everything he experienced. And then you have him speaking to the children of the people he preached to the first time. Um, where so the setting's totally different and the way he approaches talking about experiences is different because of that. And additionally with all that, we have to consider the different writing styles for the different purposes that he had where Genesis was historical talking about the history of those first generations. Uh, much of Exodus and Deuteronomy is legal in nature. Leviticus details the sacrificial system that had a very different purpose. And it makes sense for him to take on a, a different uh, writing style when talking about vastly different subjects in the same way that Paul didn't speak exactly the same way to the Philippians that he did to the Galatians. His emphasis was different. His approach was different. His tone was different. Uh, I see a lot of those same things going on. Like uh, the way Jesus spoke to those Pharisees was not the same as when he spoke to the woman at the well. You could take those Mm -hmm. two things, those two dialogues in a, a vacuum and say, well, that's not the same person, but uh, there was a different context and a different style because of that different context. So I think that probably wraps up my initial thoughts on that. Okay.
1: Um, Let me just get my thoughts together.
0: Um, JEPD is, is limited to the Pentateuch. Is that right? Um. Yes,
1: mainly. Um. But there are other texts that go outside of the Pentateuch. Uh. Which you know they might say. Uh, uh, quite a few of them are influenced by the Deuteronomist school. Uh. Like First and Second Samuel. Um. Uh. Different
0: parts Judge, of the. Uh, judges I, I probably. Mean.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um. So. You know where where the argument of uh, the documentary hypothesis is like there's these different schools that take place at different, you know, geographic or, or chronological periods in Israelite history. Uh, the latest of which I, I believe is the Deuteronomist school, which uh, the argument is that it redacts the the previous material in different places. Gotcha. So um, yeah, I, I do, I do think that a lot of texts uh, would be categorized or defined by espousing like a Deuteronomist uh, worldview. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. And the view is that uh, that that uh, school uh, gained that kind of uh, dominance or influence over the other texts um, during uh, the time of King Josiah, uh, where he rediscovers the, the book of the law of the Lord. And uh, the argument is that uh, this is uh, an expressly like Deuteronomist uh, text. Um, and that, you know, because he then institutes religious reforms throughout uh, Israel, um, that that school gained favor and kind of like a, a, a mon- monarchical uh, stamp of approval and and yeah gotcha. that that was kind of like the pivotal moment there. Okay.
0: Um,
1: yeah, um, but I I think this this comes back to my earlier comment though about uh, and and again I'm very glad that you're very aware and forthright about starting points. Um, and how much they can influence uh, how we understand and engage these texts. Um, because, right, uh, the, the starting point with the documentary hypothesis, again, is that, uh, you know, we not only is the Bible not, uh, uh, let me put it this way, that different parts of the Bible are in internal contradiction with itself, and that that mm-hmm. is a legitimate possibility uh, which is historically demonstrable right mm. um, and textually demonstrable as well and so I guess um, would you affirm uh, that in order to demonstrate uh, quote unquote demonstrate internal contradictions within the Bible uh, that you that one would have to um, jettison a presupposition that the Bible is internally uh, um, self you know, uh, internally consistent with itself.
0: Yeah, Um, It it seems like that would
1: logically follow.
0: Yeah. If you're going to start with, if you're going to start with the view that the Bible isn't, has been inspired and preserved, then it therefore precludes the possibility that it can be uh, flawed. Now, Mm -hmm of course this is a really large conversation and it has to do with original manuscripts versus translations and and all of that. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's quite possible that someone could say uh, that there are, uh, there are flaws in the English translation of the Bible, whatever translation that person might happen to be using like uh, a King James. They turn to first John five, seven and say, look, this isn't uh, original. This shouldn't be in there. And Mm -hmm. I could agree with that person. And by doing that, I am not forfeiting, the view of inspiration and preservation in scripture, it's a recognition that, yeah, we know from history that Erasmus um, had that verse added. It's called the comma Johinium. Yeah. yeah. And that verse was added in there. It's not original. All right. So we Mm -hmm. can, we can 99% be sure of that. But if we're going to take the view that (laughs) the Pentateuch was not written by Moses, but it was written by different schools that piece things together now we have really, really, really big problems that extend well beyond just one verse or one passage, but really affects the whole Bible, particularly getting to the teachings of Jesus. And you kind of have to conclude that either Jesus was wrong or he knew what was right and was just kind of misleading the people by teaching them that it was Moses who wrote it.
1: Mm-hmm. So, like, when we take the the presupposition that the Bible is internally consistent that you know not only was god capable of preserving his word um you know but uh did preserve it and that uh the 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 biblical text is understandable right um, if we took the inverse of that um i i guess so i'm trying to strike at like what i see for me personally as, as you know an an issue with the the presuppositions here so for me the the way i see it and you know i welcome your commentary after i explain this but so on the one hand we have the presupposition that uh scripture is internally consistent uh that it is you know preserved um that it does not internally contradict itself um that the theology is is consistent or you know consistent within your framework of progressive uh revelation um, and so, like you, like you said earlier, um, if we have that view of Scripture that it is not internally, uh, or or even cannot be self-contradictory, um, then it seems to me that nothing that one would present, right, uh, could, um, you know, dispute that or demonstrate otherwise. Um, because it would require a jettisoning of the presupposition there. So for me, I see the presupposition that, you know, scripture is internally consistent, leading you to the conclusion, right? In all cases that scripture is internally consistent. Whereas if one were to assume the inverse, uh, that scripture may be internally consistent, but also may not be, to me that seems to, you know, leave open the possibility that yes, if scripture is internally consistent, then you know it, we should be able to reasonably establish that through exegesis and through reading the text. Um, but it also leaves open the possibility that it might not be consistent, right? And so I see at least you know two two conclusions there: uh, that if scripture is consistent, it should be able to demonstrate its consistency. Um, but if not, then we should be able to demonstrate that it's not consistent. Whereas yeah. with the other presupposition. It seems like the only possible conclusion is that it's consistent, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of how I'm viewing it in my mind right now. I'm happy for you to pick that apart, or comment on it, or respond to it, uh, however you see appropriate.
0: Yeah. What would you What would you say to? Because I yeah, I totally am tracking with you, and I think that's a very valuable thing to bring up and, and talk about. Yeah. So so if you start with the pre commitment that it is the word of God and it cannot be flawed, then it can never be shown in any way to be inconsistent or
1: flawed yeah. in any way. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, if you start from the position of it, it might be flawed now it can mm-hmm. never be authoritative and you must always be authoritative over it. Is mm-hmm. that right?
1: Yeah. It, it seems like that would require uh, an individual to make the call of whether or not it is internally, you know, consistent. Right. Uh, Cause it would require us to either compare passages against each other to draw from history, you know, or other texts, uh, that are outside of the Bible to interpret the Bible. Right. Um, I, I think earlier, uh, you talked to, uh, or, 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 you know, mentioned the various, you know, interpretive possibilities that are then possible at that point. Right. Because, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, then, uh, yeah, it it seems like there's a multitude of different conclusions that we Mm -hmm. can reach. Right. So, um, and, and I do understand the, the issue with that. Um, we, we lose, um, you know, uh, a degree of, of confidence I'd say in the text and, in uh, the absolute message that it is communicating, right. Because well, now,
0: and, and not only that, you also lose the authority that it has to say something to you and to direct your thinking on something because it is only authoritative insofar as you affirm it. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and and I, I have gotten this in conversations with uh, different uh, small, O Orthodox Christians uh, who you know do take uh, an inerrantist, infallible view of Scripture that is it's all self sufficient, right? Um, where in talking to them, not just myself, but it's clear from the the diversity of uh, various scholars, people from different worldviews, uh, there's a lot of different ways to consider the Bible. And I've seen in different Christian denominations too, if that uh, view of inerrancy or infallibility is, you know, decreased or, you know, modified in some ways as to make, you know, these interpretive possibilities uh, uh, more open, Um yeah it, it seems like there's a there's a very wide array of of conclusions that that one can reach and um there's a lot the gray area gets expanded um because you mentioned previously that you know even within the evangelical world let's say individuals that do you know take a, a view of scripture that is very high that it's self sufficient inerrant infallible um that you know there's still there there' evangelicals are not a monolith right right uh, yeah. so there's still interpretive possibilities um that are possible there um but i I'd, I'd say the range and the 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 kind of disagreements are much more restricted um you know on perhaps various dif- more difficult passages or you know uh secondary and tertiary issues mm-hmm. as well let's say so Yeah, um, I I completely see um, how that can be, um, I guess, not just daunting, um, but uh, problematic, Mm -hmm. too, um, to an extent, Um, at least from your position. Um, So do you see, uh, there's, but on the flip side, I think there's various Christians who, um, let's say, like Peter Enns, or Michael Heiser, or, you know, individuals who I don't even know if they would identify as quote unquote, like progressive Christians.
0: Right. But they're certainly I Pe- more. I bet Peter Enns would. I, I don't yeah, think Kaiser yeah, would. Yeah. But, you
1: know, uh, let's just say they're certainly more, you know, uh, closer to the middle of the spectrum mm-hmm. than, you know, evangelicals, most evangelicals uh, would identify. So, um, but they seem to be able to to make a uh, sense of, of Christianity to, you know, at least from their own claims uh, espouse a, a Christian worldview and uh, still they don't reject the Bible outright. They consider it to be something that uh, guides their life. They consider themselves to be believers in Jesus Christ. So um, is this also an area that you you would see as uh, um, uh, dangerous to soften on, or is it something that, you know, decides who is and is not Orthodox, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um... Um, because basically what goes hand in hand with a liberal view of, or progressive view of the old Testament is evolutionary theory. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I don't know of anybody who holds to like JEPD, for example, and is still a, the, uh, creationist, theistic, uh, six day creation person. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'd agree with you there. They go, they go hand in hand and there are, um, lots and lots of dangers. I, I wrote an article from my website. Uh, let's see, when was this published? June of 16 um, called 20 questions for the theistic evolutionist. And it, it goes hand in hand with the view of, of the old Testament, like we're talking about. And so I asked questions like, um, let's see when, what did Jesus mean when he cited Genesis one saying from the beginning, God made them male and female. Um, what did Jesus mean when he talked about believing the writings of Moses? What did Abraham mean in Luke 16, when he said that men should hear Moses? Um, and yeah, I guess this is pretty evolutionary heavy. I'm skipping over a lot of the questions. Um, you know, how can Adam be called the first man in first Corinthians 15? If, you know, Genesis was kind of thrown together later by mm-hmm. a group of people who had a different view. Um, and so, yeah, there, there are a lot of theologies that are directly impacted by a progressive view of the Old Testament. And mm-hmm. I'd say this is, uh, this seems to be a, a, primary, a primary issue here, not a secondary mm-hmm. issue, because yeah. um, Scripture can never be authoritative or sufficient if it was not um, what it says it is, basically, mm-hmm. uh, or what mm-hmm. Jesus affirmed it to be.
1: Mm. Yeah. And I, I'd be interested, um, talking more about that in, uh, you know, future conversations too, mm. because this, this is an area where, yes, you know, I, I think I'd be right with you, right. Where if we are presupposing an evangelical worldview, um, some of the different issues that I've raised are, uh, not just problematic, right. But they open up to a whole range of, of issues. And so, um, at least for me as a religious outsider here, um you know for uh, an individual who identifies as a christian to you know affirm uh monolatry affirm the documentary hypothesis you know evolution i i agree it seems like you know once once that happens uh it is rare if not you know it, impossible for a whole host of other things mm-hmm. to not you know uh follow as a result um and even though there are christians uh who you know, whether they identify as progressive Christians or, um, you know, reconcile their faith in different ways, um, you know, most of them just aren't single issue, you know, it, it's right. not a single thing, right? Um, so this is an area where I, I do agree that uh, these can be problematic to an evangelical worldview. Um, and this is also an area where, you know, in the future I can talk about this more, but uh, where I see Mormonism as a theological system being able to reconcile and respond to these um, in a more robust way, or um, be, because I, I think I think the uh, and you might agree with me here that you know with these different issues, um, the evolution, monolatry, documentary hypothesis, um, I think evangelical Christianity has to retrench itself against them, or you know, or reject them, right? Mm-hmm. um, in order to sustain itself. Um, I see those things as uh, being something that are compatible within a Mormon worldview. I'm comfortable talking about that more in the future if we ever want to. But, um, yeah, for me, for me, these and, and some other areas, um, uh, it, it's hard for me to directly compare theo- theologies against each other as in like, you know, Mormonism is better than evangelical Christianity because you know, it can accept these things and doesn't mm-hmm. have to reject them. Um, but I at least see, um, more room, uh, for compatibility within Mormonism. And I think it's because of its, several of its theological, uh, commitments or, or assumptions about revelation, about scripture, about God and about how God speaks to humanity. Um, so anyways, uh, you know, I, I appreciate your responses. I think we're about at the, the hour mark or so. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, I, I enjoyed the conversation and, and look forward to your questions in the future as mm-hmm. well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'll look forward to the next one. And, uh, so we'll go ahead and sign off for this. Do we call them episodes?
1: Yeah. Uh, interviews, episodes, you know, whatever you want, I guess Ish. we should, yeah, I guess we could say episodes. So yeah, we thanks could call for them per- persons. We could call them persons. Oh, as well. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so episodes, uh, so for, <laughs> Uh, those of you who, who watch too, we hope this was a great benefit to you and encourage you to interact somehow, leave a comment somewhere because it would be great to have a wrap up episode where we can draw out some of those questions and answer those knowing, you know, what's most important to you as far as uh, information, because we've talked about a whole host of things and maybe just a couple of things really piqued your interest. Ask us more about those and we can we can discuss those in more detail. So, until mm-hmm. next time. Well,
1: thank you, Jeremy. I appreciate it.